0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Ruth Wilson Gilmore about her brand new book, Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation, which came out in May 2022 with Verso. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and American Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, where she is also director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics. She is also the author of Golden Gulag and Opposition in Globalizing California. Abolition Geography, her latest book, is a collection of Ruthie's writings spanning the past three decades, including talks, interviews, and three pieces co-authored with Craig Gilmore. This book was edited by Brenna Bandar and Alberto Toscano, who also provided its introduction. So without further ado, Welcome to the podcast, Ruthie.
1: Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join you today.
0: Thank you. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to tell me a little about yourself, your academic trajectory, your activism, how those intersect. What would you like readers to know about the work you've been doing?
1: Oh, sure. That's a great question and a nice way to start. Well, first of all, I'm 72 years old. And um, I have had a really wonderfully complicated life, part of it in academia, a lot of it out of academia, but always one with a, a bend toward trying to understand the world in order to change it. So the intellectual activity is always present, whether or not I've been involved in Um, academia as a student or as a professor or as a scholar, for that matter. And um, I went back to school in the early 1990s when I was in my 40s to study geography because, as um, I think I mentioned in one of the pieces in this book, it seemed to be one of the last materialist disciplines, one where you could really talk about the real world in its symbolic as well as um, political economic um, uh, aspects and try to figure out how things were changing and toward what end and particularly, and this is my interest throughout my life, how ordinary people organize their energy and institutions to make their own lives better.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Well, tell me a bit then about how this book... Came into being because it, it, I mean, it spans three decades, right? And it's a, it's a huge amount of, of writing. It's a big book uh, with lots of fascinating insights in. Could you tell me a little bit about the writing featured in the book? Is it all previously unpublished? Does it have a unifying theme? What, what do you talk about in the book?
1: Well, it's, most of it was published before, almost every single bit, other than the introduction that Alberto and Brenna wrote. Um, was published somewhere in the past. Uh, I started writing the oldest pieces in the book in the late 80s and early 1990s as I, along with so many people around the world, were trying to figure out in the context of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the um, uh, structural adjustment programs that were uh, renewing the impoverishment of the formal colonial world, the rise of the forces of organized violence in the overdeveloped world, especially as as um, perceivable in, in police and prisons. We were thinking about all that and trying to figure out well, what should we do that we haven't understood before? And how can we bring uh, the theories and methods and commitments that we already had through the 1960s and 1970s into the and through the 1980s to inform struggle on, as it were, a new terrain. Um, so I started writing to figure these things out because that's, you know, one of the ways that we, many of us think is by writing. And, and a lot of the writing that's in the book um, originally appeared in the public as talks. And therefore, I had a lot of interaction with people and revised my thinking. And I think, I hope sometimes sharpened it. Um, And so that's how those pieces emerged over time. And then why are they, as it were, suddenly in a book? Well, first of all, it took a long time. (laughs) There's nothing sudden about the book. But um, Alberto Toscana... And Brenda Brandar approached me and said, look, we've been reading your work. It's hard to find. It was published all over the place in these disparate and sometimes very tiny journals, um, many places that don't have a prominent online uh, presence. What if we put all this work together into a book? It was their idea. They brought the idea to Verso. The wonderful Rosie Warren at Verso immediately gave it a thumbs up. And after uh, several years of very hard work, most of it done by Alberto and Brenna and also um, a couple of uh, my research assistants um, and who are also comrades and scholars themselves, Patrick Didaw and Hilary Wilson, the book appeared as this beautiful thing. I'm very happy about it.
0: Yeah, I it is, and it is a beautiful thing too, both in in content and in and in and its and in its form. Um, Verso done another great job um, on that there on the cover. Not that we should judge it by the cover, but if we were to, uh, <laughs> um, right? That's 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 great. I, I love hearing the stories of how how books kept come into being. Um, themselves, uh, and this is a rich one. So I, I want to start. Okay, this is this is a cliched place to start, but I think it's important. I actually want to start with the title. So the title is um, "Abolition Geography: Essays Towards Liberation." So quite a lot to chew on there already. Um, I want to start first with this with this idea of abolition. So. Um, If you'll bear with me for a moment, Uh, I first came across the concept of abolition through uh, veganism, which as a liberation movement has both intersections and shared language with other movements for justice, including borrowing this term abolition. And among vegans, one of many tensions is that between abolitionist scholars like Lee Hall, who push for a more expansive definition of veganism as a total reconfiguration of human's relationship with humans and non-human animals including respecting free-living animals' right to exist and reformists usually represented by major organizations who would argue that this is too ambitious that what we should focus on is improving husbandry standards or ending particularly cruel practices and so that's a debate that I'm personally personally very invested in and I have a good sense of what abolitionism means for vegans And I think given that the term abolitionist is widespread in the context of other movements too, and also has come to prominence in the last couple of years, especially prominence following the murder of George Floyd, our listeners probably have their own understandings or questions or maybe misperceptions about what abolition means. So I know what it means to me in a day-to-day context. What does it mean for you, Ruthie?
1: Oh, I love how you put that question, um, and thank you for immediately situating it um, in in a world that might not immediately come to the minds of a lot of people who are listening to us today. Um, the world of veganism, and those those two um, uh, extremes, uh, which are you know full of tension, uh, very much shape how it is that I and many of my comrades are thinking about abolitionism today. And that is to think in terms of and through the energies and processes of thorough reconfiguration, not just slight improvements. And let me give an example from the 19th century and the, um, a moment of abolition that many listeners are probably uh, somewhat aware of. And that is uh, the time when the uh, British Empire, quote, abolished the slave trade. All right, They didn't abolish slavery. They abolished the slave trade. And we won't go into, you know, all of the uh, struggles and features through which that eventually emerged in the year 1807 as that particular um, commitment on the part of the British Empire. But what from the point of view of the British Empire did that mean? It meant that abolition became a policing function. And so the British Empire sent out its fast and well-armed ships to ply the South Atlantic to interrupt ships that were carrying captives from uh, West and West Central Africa to the Americas to labor in plantations and cities and mines and factories and all of the places where enslaved people labored. Well, that abolition, which was an interruption in an aspect of unfreedom, is not the total reconfiguration of everything. It's that other abolition that you pointed toward where reformists are saying, well, let's just have kinder, more thoughtful animal husbandry and kinder, more thoughtful human, non-human interaction and things will be better in the world. The radical abolition that um, uh, you described, on the part of uh, the thinker you named as as the reconfiguration uh, thinker about veganism, is the kind of abolition that I and my comrades draw together in the present by looking back through time. And what we what we take to be um, central to our understanding is that abolition is always presence, and so the question is, the presence of what? And answering that question means the presence of what kinds of relationships between and among people where to do what kinds of things to what end? So we've kind of leaned into the second word of the title of the book, which is geography. And insofar as geography is, and it's kind of most crude, the study of people, places and things, then it is further the study of why things happen where they do, or as I kind of say, with a little bit of a twinkle somewhere in the book, not where is Nebraska, but why is Nebraska, which is to say, what are the combinations of human ingenuity, energy, um, inequality, and human environmental interactions that create the possibility for a place to be uh, a, a productive landscape, a landscape of home, a landscape of freedom, a landscape of unfreedom. And what are the possibilities for transforming these landscapes that do already exist in the world into places of greater freedom where more and more people can flourish. So that is uh, put together what abolition geography is for me. And to put my finger on it a bit more um, uh, explicitly, I take very seriously the Um, teaching and uh, suggestions that W.E.B. Du Bois put together in his monumentally wonderful book from 1935, Black Reconstruction in America. And it's in that book that he proposed that there were two different kinds of, of democracy. He said there's industrial democracy and there's abolition democracy. And he tried to show us in the many chapters of the book how the um, uh, elements of abolition democracy, at least for a while, flourished in the U.S. South. And I and many other scholars um, have looked around the world to see other examples of abolition democracy flourishing. So um, Angela Davis wrote a book uh, or put together a book of, of her lectures on this topic. Christina Heatherton has a new book coming out in the fall that, that lifts up the kind of uh, what she calls the abolitionist international of the 19th century that gives us some insights into radicalism of the 20th century. There are, there are many examples, uh, some of them Uh, Short-lived others with uh, fairly long um, lives where we see people making abolition geographies by reconfiguring thoroughly relationships of people, natural resources, the environment, and strangers, all of the above.
0: Right. So thorough reconfiguration would be, you know, if we had to summarize, that would be what this means, right? And I mean, I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit more about the sort of specifically um, geographical insights and and approaches you take, um, because I I mean, I think it's really interesting that you are flying the flag as well for geography um, as Problematic a history as that discipline also has. Um, but I think it's interesting, especially because geography is a somewhat beleaguered discipline in the US. Um, you know, the loss of geography departments um, and its sort of marginalization or but people don't really understand it. People do think that geography is, as you say, uh, at the start of, of your, the fourth essay here, scholar activists in, in the mix. Um, you know, you were asked by a former student when you started your, your PhD, why would you go and study with the political interest you have? Why would you be going to study? Uh, where is Nebraska? As you say as you say the question is not where is nebraska but why why is nebraska um and so i mean yeah how how do geographers try or how have geographers have tried to get at these at these these questions um and yeah how do you how do you find yeah being a geographer making making those interventions and engaging with sort of other scholars do you find there is an understanding of the of the contribution that geography brings or is that something you have to keep um keep hammering home um yeah, and I'd also be interested in in with I mean within and an outside geography. Um, I mean, you mentioned Du Bois. I'm also I'm also wondering who else who else's work has been influential, you know, um, in shaping your your thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's very interesting that um, that you raise the fact that geography as a discipline in the United States has been very beleaguered, and indeed it has. Um, many, 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 many geography departments closed um, between the uh, latter part of the 1930s and the early part of the 1950s. And uh, some of them were replaced by what came to be known as uh, area studies and others just were absorbed into Planning, or economics, or history, or anthropology, or sociology, for that matter, it just went. And and of course, part of the reason for that um, beleaguered state was that a good deal of uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth century geography, like a good deal of other um, uh, leading social science and I'd say across the board disciplines in uh, higher education in the English-speaking world, as well as beyond, had taken um, up the work of justifying uh, inequality between and among uh, peoples, between and among uh, nations, between and among the colonizer and the colonized, between and among the free and the unfree. They were working very hard to make all of that seem natural, necessary, and inevitable. And um, where geography went uh, a bridge too far was to embrace many of the principles and practices, heinous, of um, eugenics that were also extremely formative for Nazi thought. Now, Nazis did not have to look to geographers to um, develop um, many of the uh, insights and practices that they put into into action uh, during the uh, rise and then decline of what Mark Maysauer calls Hitler's empire. And certainly plenty of people have showed that the colonial experience of many, not only those who were colonized by Germany, but those who were colonized by many of the imperial powers of the North Atlantic Um, certainly had exercised a lot of the um, forms of uh, and and policies that uh, materialized as the Nazi war against uh, so many people in the world. Geography fell, but some of the underlying principles in geography which is true of any discipline, remained useful. And they were useful in that they um, enable people to think very specifically and diligently about the, um, uh, I keep repeating this and I will repeat it more as we talk, but the relationships between humans and the environment, the, uh, the particular ways that in various um, uh, climates and with various uh, combinations of um, natural and other resources that the land can uh, flourish, that, that people and non-human life can flourish together, um, the organization of the built environment, the relentless urbanization of humans on the planet in the 20th century. All of these things are questions that come um, uh, to the fore in any serious program of geographic study. And in fact, maybe I'll, I'll pause here to remind listeners that that word geography is geo, world right. So it's not only right about the world, but it's also how we humans in relation to all of these forces that are not human, organize and reorganize the planet. So it's, it's how the world is written rather than who writes about the world that matters.
0: Right, absolutely. And I mean, it is, it is, it's also... So sort of clear from when reading your work, um, I suppose you know. I'm asking you to explain here for the benefit of our listeners. Of course, our listeners should read the work too, and it will become apparent um, how geographical analysis is sort of a cornerstone of your thinking um, and and the sorts of scholarship which inform it. Um, I think, yeah. I think there's there's I think the fifth essay in this book. Um, race and and globalization has a sort of uh, is is a really excellent I think introduction to uh, a lot of the ways in which questions um, these questions are geographical questions questions of injustice so I mean you talk about how um, the movement of prisoners uh, is a a wealth transfer between poor communities um, effectively I mean you talk uh, in Golden Gulag, um, which maybe maybe you might want to say a few words about um, uh, about kind of yeah those those fundamentally spatial economic uh, aspects of prisons. So not just a sort of question of moral outrage, but it's also a question about what prisons are doing for whom, right? That's that's something else you ask throughout, and what 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 processes there embedded in, if I'm understanding correctly. So, I mean, in, in this book, um, you, you describe prisons as a geographical solution to socioeconomic problems. Um, and I think those kind of materialist commitments extend throughout your work. So I, I don't know if you'd like to talk about um, some of that earlier work, perhaps.
1: Sure. I have that book right here. Um, sure. And, and it, it, let me just say, uh, although Golden Gulag was published in 2007, a number of the pieces in Abolition Geography are older than Golden Gulag. I, I wrote some of the pieces in Abolition Geography before I went back to school. I wasn't a scholar. I was a dropout. And I was you know involved in political work and uh, in, in that context, thinking and writing. Uh, again, not for to make a career, but to figure out what to do next. So thinking about um, your question, as you put it, that um, uh, the movement of prisoners is uh, a form of wealth and also income circulation transfer, brings us actually to something more fundamental that I want to talk about first, and then we can go back to prisons. That is um, the the factors of production that make anything possible are um, land and labor, which is say human energy and innovation and ingenuity and persistence. And um, very often, uh, some kind of money or, or other um, medium that makes it possible for people to get things that they don't have so that they can do what they want to do, and our capacity to organize ourselves and each other to do these things. One of the key ways that such organization happens, not the only way, but a key way are the various capacities of the state whether the state is organizing public education or public health or public sewers or public water or public prisons or or courts you know these are forms of of organization so uh in studying as i did to shreds how it happened that the state of California set out to realize what one of its analysts called the biggest prison building project in the history of the world. Um, This was in the early 1980s, the uh, analyst said this. I started with these fundamental factors of production to ask, well, how did they become available? Why weren't those factors land, labor, money, state capacity, doing other things. Uh, What was the relationship of um, uh, capitalist firms in California, one of the richest um, territorial units on the planet, if it were a country, it would be one of the biggest economies, top 10. Why was all this land available? Why was all this labor available? why was all this state capacity that wasn't developed to put people in prison turned to that activity? And the answer, the explanation, couldn't be, and indeed turned out not to be, something called crime. It was, however, a combination of what I've come over the years to to describe as a combination of on the one hand organized abandonment that modestly educated people in the prime of life who in a different political economic configuration would be making their livings and supporting their households making, moving growing and caring for things and people as that shifted away we have surplus people whose labor Capacity was not absorbed into the political economy in that territory in any other way. And I can go through a similar uh, discussion of what was happening with land, especially in rural areas, but also urban. And I could go through an explanation of where the money capital came from that might have been used and in earlier iterations of public finance was used to build highways, roads, dams, schools, hospitals, housing. And finally, how all of the um, uh, accumulated uh, talents, which is to say the bureaucratic and fiscal capacities of the California state and the various municipalities in that state turned toward the work of locking up hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. I go through all of that detail to emphasize that the factors, as I keep saying, that came together in the biggest prison building project in the history of the world could have come together differently and that it's a matter of political will, which is to say the organization of organized people on their own behalf that um, is necessary to change that trajectory, to achieve the thorough reconfiguration of, um, in this case, California, but everywhere where inequality is the deepest mass incarceration and criminalization are most profound. That's true in the United States, US-wide. It's true in the United Kingdom. It's true in India and Brazil. It's true in South Africa. It's true many, many places. Um, and that the deepening of inequality uh, enables the rise of the forces of organized violence as police, military prisons, courts, And that deepening uh, becomes more and more profound as the organized abandonment that produced the crisis in the first place um, uh, refreshes and renews itself. So what's an example of that? An example of that can be anything from the fact that people still can't drink the water in Flint, Michigan, to the fact that any number of small... Um, municipal governments are uh, dependent on fines and fees for their own revenue because the capitalist firms are not paying taxes Um, and therefore the police become more and more powerful and indeed they become so powerful that all of those fees that go into the coffers of the municipalities then go back out into police salaries and nothing else so you know we can we can look at the how uh, everyday life has been so remarkably distorted over the last forty years, such that young people, I guess people your age, can't even imagine things being different because this is what normal had become. But it isn't natural. It's not um, uh, inevitable, and it's not necessary.
0: Right. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think um, you, you talk quite powerfully, you know, about these sort of, uh, yeah, materialist uh, aspects, but also their, and also their intersection with the cultural questions of, I mean, what we are able to imagine, right? So I think, yeah, I really liked also your interview with uh, fellow geographer and, and artist Trevor Paglen um, in, yeah, in this same volume here, Abolition Geography. And you, I mean, you say there that so you're talking about the military-industrial complex, and and also and also you talk about the the prison-industrial complex. Um, but you say of the military-industrial complex that it's had a huge cultural effect uh, on this country. So you say that one of the key cultural effects of the military industrial complex has been to constantly refresh, renew, and reinvigorate the cultural violence that holds this country, that is the US, um, together. And that people essentially have a permanent warfare mentality, assuming that their neighbor is threatening them, that they should harm them if they come over the fence. And talk about that almost as human nature. And you assert that that's not human nature. That's American culture. And I think that you talk in in a really compelling way, um, especially throughout this volume about, yeah, those those questions of, it it is a question of imagination um, fundamentally as well, right? And so I don't know if you'd like to expand on that, but i I, I would be interested in in also learning how um, if the role of scholars is is in some way if we're trying to do something positive anyway is to is to change the way people think um, about these questions. Uh, I wonder how how if you want if you were able to give some examples or how how you think it's it's productive for scholars to engage with or contribute to abolitionist movements. And also, what what does an abolitionist movement look like, and how do we distinguish that from a, a from a reformist movement? Right, you actually talk about some 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 really um, powerful examples in in this book, elsewhere in the book, of, of what I think we would call abolitionist movements, um, and. Yeah, when you talked about uh, justice for janitors, sorry, this is a slightly long-winded question, but it really made me think about the um, current struggles in London, um, at the London universities, uh, between the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, that's the IWGB, and um, universities in London as employers of precarious workers, Um who you know may be employed on, on sort of sub subcontracted forms of labor have fewer fewer rights, poorer pay than other workers at the university, um, and so I, I would think of yeah of of that maybe um, I, I don't know I don't know how you would how you would, if you if you're familiar with that campaign if you would call that abolitionist or reformist or what you would call that and how you would situate these kinds of contemporary labor movements would also be an interesting question but anywhere anywhere in there you want to you want to jump in would be great how how can scholars Contribute, and what should we think about as an abolitionist movement?
1: All right, how can scholars contribute? Is is I mean, it's a great question, and I don't think I have a quick answer. But there is something I want to say as an aside before I come back to some of the contemporary struggles, like the one that you just described, that I see as 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 full of um, abolition uh, possibilities or. Um, the way I put it with, in a conversation at the LSE I, I had not too long ago, um, that have abolitionist characteristics uh, without necessarily the people who are organizing those struggles, thinking of themselves as, oh, yes, we are abolitionists. I don't think that that's a necessary thing for the outcome to be um, enhancing movement toward liberation. Uh, but let me say something about schools and universities. They're crossroads. They're really kind of incredible things. And they've been ruined, um, uh, you know, attacked relentlessly uh, for years and years and years. I recognize all of that. I recognize all of that. But I don't have a lot of patience for people who come to me saying, oh, the academy, bad, 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 oh, the university, bad, 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 bad. It's like, yeah, but. I mean, it's in the context of all this other bad, 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 bad. So the question is, what can we do together? Now, one of my favorite stories of, of many stories of how universities are crossroads is the one that happened here in Lisbon, Portugal, where I am now, right around the corner from where I live. In fact, it's five minutes on foot. It was the house where the overseas students who had come to Lisbon to do their graduate study lived together. Um, in the under the dictatorship, under the Salazar dictatorship, when Salazar had unilaterally declared that the overseas, the colonies were not colonies anymore; they were just overseas provinces, and therefore Portugal was not a colonial power. Um, the 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 dictatorship, the Portuguese government worked very hard. to identify and train up a comprador bourgeoisie everywhere that Portugal had a colonial presence, right? And that was true also for the British Empire, the French Empire, all the empires did that. They all did it. They all trained up local bourgeoisies um, uh, for a a couple of reasons. One was to have somebody on the ground whose relatively elite status might make them uh, more, as it were, loyal to the colonial power and less so to um, um, uh, the colonized. And also because it was pretty clear from the early part of the 20th century that the costs of colonialism were going to become prohibitive. And therefore the goal should be to establish relations in the colonies, such that when when independence happened, there would still be a political and economic circulation of um, of money, resources, talent, and so forth. All right, so that's all background for for our audience to understand that when Emilcar Cabral and Augustinio Neto and other people who wound up being among the leadership of the anti-colonial movements in places like Cabo Verde, Dine Bissau, Angola and Mozambique and elsewhere, came to Lisbon for their graduate work. They were brought here to be the comforter bourgeoisie. They were compelled to live with each other because of segregation. They got to know each other. And it was one of the ways that they built their revolutionary consciousness. Right. It's one of the ways they did it. So they lived around the corner they had clandestine study groups and when they were ready to continue with uh revolutionary um organizing that they had already started on they slipped out of portugal and and went on and 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 eventually commenced the wars that led to um liberation in the context of what they did it wasn't merely the fact that they uh, managed to meet at a crossroads that mattered. It also was important that people spent a lot of time, not because they were academics, but because understanding how change happens matters, that they figured out, um, for example, an entire very... Um, uh, 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 elaborated education system for, for example, the peoples of Guinea-Bissau, 99% of whom were not literate at the time that that revolution started. And the education program that arose in the context of that revolution is best known to most listeners of our conversation today as pedagogy of the oppressed, that Paulo Freire is... um, uh, most strongly associated with. Freire went to the revolution in Guinea-Bissau and learned a lot of what he then, you know, has as, as helped to make uh, a popular movement around Latin America and the world. So all of these are examples of what's possible if we take seriously the Not only that universities are crossroads, but that we can bring together a lot of thinking and ideas and interactions that might not otherwise happen. That's that's all. It just might not otherwise happen. It's a modest thing, but it's also true. And I want to say one other thing about Cabral, Um, not uniquely, but notably Cabral was kind of in the margin of, of, of being a geographer, he was an agronomist. And agronomists, um, like geographers in general, are people who um, are compelled to understand the relationships of people and the places where they look, live in order to figure out how to reconfigure those places to make them flourish, and it's, it's kind of well known that many, many, many agronomists in the, in the decolonizing world became leaders in part because they understood a lot of things and could share that understanding with people, not because they were sort of naturally the bosses.
0: Right. Which uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, optimistically, maybe we should say we could say is, a, is yeah, as, you, as that's adjacent to geography, that that is that could be, or perhaps is something we should aspire to as geographers is to is to use that, that actual in depth understanding we have or should have of what we study um, to, yeah, convey the stakes um, and explain the dynamics to people. Um, as well as of course supporting supporting um liberation movements or you know abolitionist oriented uh movements as in when we encounter them right um yeah i i i mean i i know that i know that you're continuing um in this vein of, of educating uh, other scholars and the public um, in your work I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now uh what's what's next for you or what can we expect to see from you
1: sure um i had a note to myself here yes um, <laughs> what's next um the the book that i'm i'm madly finishing up now that will come out in in October is called "Change Everything," um, which is another way of saying thorough reconfiguration. And uh, the it's it's a it's a collection actually of lectures um, that that I gave in in a variety of contexts that kind of arose generally because of some kind of crisis and then turned into. Uh, a way of, of thinking about the world and the various strands that you and I have been discussing in our conversation today and what I find the most exciting about about thinking these things through is thinking about how many different um, currently um, active organizations of completely different types are doing work that, from my perspective, seems to be trending toward abolition in the radical sense, the thorough reconfiguration sense. So I'll give you some examples. Um, One is the MST, uh, the landless workers' movement in Brazil, that's just celebrated, I think its 38th year, and the MST has has arose in the rural context of uh, Brazil. Uh, mainly uh, working with, uh, as its name tells us, landless workers to figure out how to uh, take control of, which is to say occupy, lands in order to create the conditions for um, uh, stable and secure uh, communities. So the MST in rural areas does a lot of agricultural work. There are schools, there are villages, there's everything. And um, it, currently, it is the biggest um, uh, producer of organic rice in Latin America. And the rice is sold um, to at, at differential prices uh, to various... Um, uh, communities as well as given to people who, um, for example, people in Venezuela because of the US embargo are having a hard time getting adequate nutrition. The MST's work has um, uh, extended to the uh, uh, working with people in urban areas, particularly Sao Paulo and beyond, who are um, vulnerable to the organized violence forces, not only of the notorious police and militias of Brazil, but also to those who've been delegated by the United States to interrupt long-distance migrants who might be headed to the U.S. or Canada. And so they've been doing work in, in creating... Um, uh, Uh, systems of shelter and safety for long-distance migrants coming through and working to uh, combine um, the energies and capacities of people moving through with people who are living in precarious situations um, in urban Brazil. The MST famously, or should be famous, has done a lot of work, um, kind of outreach work, wherever they're called to to go places like South Africa, where self-organized communities who are part of the Abalali movement. Uh, For example, uh, Kana Kana in uh, Durban have worked with MST to figure out how to make the soils of of the self-built community where they are Um, flourish. MST sends people to Indonesia and to places that are trying to convert away from things like palm oil to um, sustainable and uh, eatable um, kinds of agriculture uh, locally. I also work with a completely different kind of organization, National Nurses United, many of whom are um, themselves long-distance migrants uh, in the United States who, um, in the pandemic, uh, could see very clearly so many of the contradictions of the current moment in their everyday lives. So one long distance migrants or many of their, their, co- uh, colleagues are long distance migrants too. They're struggling to have adequate, um, Uh, staffing, uh, equipment, personal protection, equipment, and support in the localities where they're working. And in those contexts, they have had to organize their local unions, but what are they fighting against? They're fighting against a global behemoth um, that owns uh, uh, so many of the hospitals. So the global local, internationalism are all very apparent, you know, in the face of uh, the pandemic and the sorts of um, devastation that the pandemic has moved through communities. So the nurses have put together really remarkable um, uh, 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 agreements um, in their annual um, uh, conferences, uh, resolutions that demand reductions in policing and prison expenditures and demand free health care for all. Uh, so that's another example. I could move on and and at less length talk about you know the state of Kerala in Southwest India, that um, uh, because it's had for years a development plan that is not tied to the urgency for growth, which is what is wrong with capitalism. Um, uh, developed its own capacity to produce oxygen, which has been very important during the pandemic. And that oxygen has been available um, to people, regardless if they're citizens of the state of Kerala, they can be anywhere, anywhere nearby. Uh, There are many, many other uh, examples uh, that I could give you. So these are things that I've been thinking about a lot. People I've been talking with, um, I have learned over the years from uh, the folks I've mentioned, but also people like Sonia Voss-Bourges, who wrote an, an amazing book about the PAIGC liberation education struggle that I talked about when I talked about Cabral, Maitri Prasad, who is um, an economist from Kerala, um, the Patnax, uh Stuart Hall, Walter Rodney looms large in my imagination as all, at all times, as does Claudia Jones. I mean, there are just so many people whose work um, has mattered to how I go about thinking about things. And I suppose, you know, the last thing I want to say at this moment is that um, a lot of people who um, feel abashed about being scholars or let me let me put this even more boldly. People who think that there should be shame in being professional intellectuals instead of people who understand the um, opportunity and responsibility of being professional intellectuals seem to think that the only job we have is to kind of document as in write down what communities say and then repeat that to somebody else. That doesn't make any kind of sense at all, because we think about the variety of understandings that people have about why and how we struggle in the world, we see that any amount of struggle is only reinforcing and renewing the problem that others in the same community are struggling to undo. So our work Professional intellectuals, whether we're academics or writers or street corner preachers, our work is to make the contradictions apparent so people can start to see how the patterns that seem to completely um, cage us might, if we just turn our attention slightly differently, become patterns that we can use to undo the caging that we rail against and that many people think abolition at the end of the day is only about.
0: Right absolutely and that's a great place for us to end. Um, It's been wonderful talking with you today Ruthie. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you everyone else for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Ruth Wilson Gilmore about her brand new book, Abolition Geography Essays Toward Liberation, which was edited by Brenna Bandar and Alberto Toscano and published with Verso in May 2022. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the press, or from any other ethical retailer. But those of you looking for further listening, I know Ruthie has some excellent in-depth interviews with Navara and The Dig, and probably more to come that I'm not aware of. Uh, but for now, thank you all for listening, and thanks again, Ruthie, for joining me today. Thank you.